Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. This week, we're taking a look back at 2018. Today, two of our regulars join me to discuss the year from trade and real estate perspectives. You're listening to BIV Today. There were several significant business and economic stories over the last year, be it LNG Canada, the legalization of recreational cannabis, real estate. But one of the most significant and persistent stories was trade, be it new agreements, revised ones, trade conflicts, or general trade uncertainty. Carlo Dade is the director of the Center for Trade and Investment Policy at the Canada West Foundation. He's joined the show throughout the year to comment on USMCA, CPTPP, and China, and other trade issues. But he joins me today with some final insights as we start to close the door on 2018. Carlo, as always, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Haley, my pleasure. Kind of hard to believe we're at the end of the year already, eh? I know. It's really hard to believe. And if we look back at what happened in 2018, it almost feels like it was the year that went on for many, many years. There was so much that happened. And I want to ask you from a trade perspective, what, in your view, were the biggest stories of 2018? Well, I think for Canada, uh, the biggest, and the globe, actually, arguably, the biggest story is the evolution of everyone's relationship with the U.S., uh, especially when it comes to trade, rules for trade, uh, et cetera. It's obviously hit us here in North America on both sides of the U.S. border, going through the negotiations or the renegotiations for a new NAFTA agreement, but it's also hit uh, other countries, most notably China. And given that China is our number two trade partner, I think, uh, God, I always get the figures wrong, I think it's around 13% of total two-way trade for Canada. Um, and for BC, of course, the, the, the figure is much higher. Um, it, it, it's impacted. Our number one and number two trade partners leaving Canada caught between a rock and a hard place uh, in, in so many things. But then on the other side, this, despite the bad news, this is arguably also probably the best era for trade or the best window for trade that we've had in Canada. We've signed two new NAFTA agreements. Forget the NAFTA with the U.S., the new, the new NAFTA with the U.S. We have two huge new multilateral agreements, and agreements, one set of rules for many economies, one in the Pacific, which is the CPTPP, which gives us the equivalent of 10 new trade agreements around the Pacific, but instead we have one agreement that covers 10 economies, which is much better, and we have the same thing on the Atlantic with our agreement with the European Union under CETA. In both of these agreements, the Americans are absent, which essentially puts American market share in these economies on the table for us and gives us a chance to burrow into supply and production chains ahead of the Americans. It's not just tariffs in these agreements, there are a wide range of benefits we have over the Americans. So for that, you can quote Dickens. It was what, the best of times and the worst of times, maybe. (laughs) That's a very good analogy, and I think many people would find that very relatable. We're going to jump a little bit between looking back at 2018 and looking ahead at 2019. You mentioned the CPTPP, obviously a very significant agreement with lots of opportunities, even for small and medium-sized businesses. What do you think we can expect? Because there 
not all countries that are member countries of this agreement have yet ratified this. So what are your expectations for this agreement in 2019? Well, right. So actually, this is a great place to have the conversation, having a, a more sophisticated business audience. Your listeners will understand that um, as opposed to the popular media where the expectation is, okay, the agreement signed. What am I going to walk into the supermarket and see tomorrow? What am I going to notice next week? The agreement will take time to, to play out for us. The key thing for business is to start taking the steps now to take advantage of what's in the agreement. So some of the things that are there uh, with the agreement coming online, first, for businesses that are concerned about tariffs, and these are especially the large commodity exporters in Canada, some of the tariffs in the TPP are step tariffs. So normally tariffs go to zero when an agreement enters into force. With the TPP, there are a number of tariffs in places like Japan where the Japanese will knock 1.5% off every year till the tariff gets down to zero. So if you take the case of, say, plant protein, which is uh, all the buzz in Canada, and for good reason, the government's invested in a new supercluster, et cetera, et cetera. But for plant protein, the tariff in Japan gets knocked down 1.5% a year. It gets 1.5% off the day the agreement comes into effect, and then 1.5% every January 1st. So with the agreement coming into effect at the end of December, December 30th or December 31st, the tariff gets cut 1.5%, and then a couple of days later on January 1st, it gets cut another 1.5%. So for businesses that are concerned about tariffs with the agreement, I'd urge them to take a look because 1.5% versus 3% is a fairly significant tariff advantage over the Americans, and you'll see that sort of thing. The other thing, especially for businesses in Vancouver, which is setting itself up as a gateway between the Americas and Asia, the ability under the TPP to bring in temporary workers, knowledge workers, service workers, technicians, uh, technical people into Canada for short-term periods or to send Canadians abroad gives us a huge advantage over the Americans. Everyone knows what a pain in the, you know what, U.S. Customs and Border is and how difficult it is to get people, even Canadians, crossing the border into the U.S. Uh, for things like attending conferences, how much of a hassle it can be. We have a huge advantage over the Americans in ease of moving people, and by people I mean workers, business people, to and from Japan, Malaysia, Vietnam, Australia, now Chile and Mexico too. So this really gives us a, a new opportunity and business needs to start thinking about this um, now because that will come into effect for the countries that have signed and countries like Vietnam are expected to sign on early in the new year as well. And this agreement, of course, is sort of a path forward for the federal government achieving what is a fairly ambitious goal to di diversify overseas exports to grow them by 50 percent by 2050. Do you think business can expect any incentives, assistance from government to help achieve this? Or will really the responsibility fall to businesses to educate themselves and figure out this is how I leverage an agreement like the CPTPP? Well, the responsibility always, you know, falls to business. But that's a, a great question because there's always confusion about this in, in Parliament, in the Trade Committee, when the opposition and the government are yelling at each other 
as to whose fault it is that exports haven't grown, to talk in non-specialized media like this. Um, there's the appearance that the government can mandate trade or the government can move diversification. That really only works in a centrally planned economy like China, where they don't enterprises. You know, you're going to ex- congratulations. You're going to export more from a country you've never heard of. Get to it. That doesn't happen in Canada. So it really is the province of the private sector to try and suss through the agreement. Now, the government has increased resources under the last fiscal update. The government talked about increasing resources for groups like the Trade Commissioner Service. My understanding is that the entire budget for advertising for the Trade Commission is something like $100,000, which is just ridiculous, especially with, again, two new NAFTAs, the European Union Agreement and the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement coming online. So the government is going to significantly have to up its game in terms of resources. We at Canada West have a publication uh, for small and medium enterprises explaining some of the non-tariff advantages in the TPP, things businesses wouldn't normally think of. And that really is the type of, I think, publication that any of your listeners can use to gain insights on things like moving people, customs prejudgments, electronic commerce rules, et cetera, et cetera, that are really important um, to businesses. But certainly, yeah, the government is going to have to step up. Also, we have the added advantage. Our guide on the uh, Trans-Pacific Agreement was sponsored by the Canadian Trade Commissioner Service, as one would expect. But it was also sponsored by the government of New Zealand. So the Kiwis are extremely interested in working with Canadian companies to take advantage of third markets like Malaysia or Japan. So, you know, businesses have not just the Canadian resources with an agreement like the TPP, but a range of other governments. And in Vancouver, you have a New Zealand trade office, an Australia trade office, a large Mexican uh, trade office. And Mexico will be a significant aid to us in being able to keep supply and production chains in the U.S. with Mexican products, which qualify under NAFTA, and Mexican inputs, which also qualify under the TPP. So your businesses in Vancouver have a number of resources, not just Canadian, but also the foreign trade missions and foreign trade commissioners uh, that are stationed in Canada. You mentioned at the start that really 2018 was in part dominated by the evolution of the United States relationship with the rest of the world. We have a USMCA in place now, but of course there are still tariffs on certain products, softwood for example being one. How would you describe Canada's relationship with the United States at the end of 2018? Oh boy, uh, that's a... (laughs) Trying to, trying to think of something positive to spin here. Look, the positive with the USMCA and the relationship is, you know, we are neighbors. And if you look at the gravity model of trade, countries, especially large economies that are close to each other, trade with each other. Uh, what government can do is facilitate or, or mess it up. In the past, governments have facilitated uh, the natural advantages we have to trade with the U.S., What we got with the USMCA was a limit on the type of damage that government could do. So in essence, getting out of the new NAFTA, we escaped without major losses. 
And that, at the end of the day, turns out to be uh, our victory. But make no mistake, the new NAFTA creates new frictions in trade. It makes trade more difficult, and it doesn't update things that would be important to Canada, like moving the people and access to workers uh, to the U.S. It's now easier, as I said before, to move workers to and from Vietnam or Japan than it is to and from the United States for, for Canadian companies. So that was a, a major disappointment. The good news is we didn't do much damage. The bad news is we lost a, a chance to really update the agreement and to make it work better. And instead, we've put in frictions. As for a relationship with the U.S., and, and this will go into predictions for next year, you know, our relationship with the U.S. is more difficult. It will remain more difficult. And it's likely to actually increase in terms of difficulty. Some issues that we thought were settled under the new NAFTA, like grain grading, this isn't an issue in Vancouver. You've got to move a bit east into the prairies. But that issue is not resolved, and that's a latent um, problem or trade irritant. Country of origin labeling, elements of the U.S. ranching community want to revisit that. We just had uh, the junior senator in North Dakota call for a Commerce Department investigation onto dumping of Canadian potatoes into Canada. So we're going to have a series of ongoing frictions with the U.S. This is going to require continued presence by the federal government and continued investment of the federal government of resources to keep working U.S. officials. But it also requires that provincial governments do their share. Now, across the prairies, Manitoba and Saskatchewan have been very good about going to things like the Western Governors Association and pushing Canadian interests, working state officials to advance Canadian and Western interests. The one province that's pretty much been absent has been British Columbia. And the real worries about BC being able to do its part, not just in things like the Western Governors Association, but also the U.S. Council of State Governments and all the other sort of subnational groups we have. BC tends to focus very narrowly on specific issues in the Cascadia Corridor. But given our relationship with the U.S. on the trade front, um, there's certainly a need for BC to step up and do more and to finally start playing its part uh, to help out the way the other provinces are. We in Canada have also been experiencing some friction with our second largest trade partner, particularly this month. If you take into account the incident with the detention of Huawei's CFO and maybe what else has transpired throughout the year, where would you describe our relationship with China being at this point in time? You know, it, it's in the valley. Um, but from a business perspective, we've actually taken a look at uh, Canadian trade with China, and it has fairly steadily grown um, over the past couple decades. It's now, I think, again, I may be off, but I thought it was close to 13% of total two-way trade. We've seen steady year-on-year -year growth of around 10 11% in our trade, and that's encouraged uh, that's occurred when we've been fighting with China, when we've been getting along with China, when relations have been cold and relations have been hot. So I think the tariff situation that the U.S. has put on will, of course, dim this somewhat. But, you know, overall, trade with China is a decision 
that's made by thousands, hundreds of thousands of Canadian businesses every day and millions of Canadian consumers every weekend to Costco. So that is a bit more immune to some of the political things going on. In terms of Huawei specifically, look, there are two sets of issues here. One is their investment in Internet backbone technology and the Americans and the other five eyes. These are countries that share sophisticated signals intelligence uh, with the U.S., uh, Great Britain, Australia, New Zealand, us. The other countries have made it clear that Huawei cannot invest in internet backbone and telecom infrastructure. Canada has pushed back against this, but I think we're going to have to relent. It's funny, though, because this issue of Huawei investing is the only thing upon which Justin Trudeau and Brad Wall agree. So you have this really odd situation in Canada, I think, that's transposed to the U.S. and the other five eyes where there was a bit more unanimity, uh, maybe not Australia, but certainly in the others. She was going to pop up. In terms of the particulars with Huawei and the rest of Sabrina or Armand, look, I've said this before. If this were a Canadian company and it were accused of violating U.S. economic embargo in Cuba, and even if the company was accused of fraud about this, and the Americans sent an arrest warrant up here for a Canadian CEO for violating economic embargo of Cuba, we tell the Americans what they can do with their arrest warrant. So we have pushed back very strongly against extraterritoriality of U.S. Uh, economic embargo and U.S. sanctions. In fact, it's illegal for Canadian companies to pay fines for violating U.S. sanctions in Cuba. So and you can actually face jail time up to five years if you're a Canadian CEO that pays a fine to the U.S. government for violating sanctions in Cuba. So again, to be clear, because this is somewhat confusing, it's not that you would pay the fine for having violated the sanctions, just the opposite. You would pay a fine for giving paying a penalty to the U.S. for having done so. And the charge would be that you cooperated with the U.S., in enforcement of an economic embargo against Cuba, and that in Canada is a crime. So for us in this position, it's kind of ironic that we're looking at some, I think, spurious charges at best. Uh, Meng is accused of misspeaking during a PowerPoint, and that has her charged with fraud. Again, the U.S. economic embargo policy has been problematic for Canada. We realize how untransparent, unaccountable it is, and we've taken legal measures to protect Canadian companies from winding up in the position that the Huawei uh, CFO is charged in. So that's kind of ironic, um, but it um, certainly caused some friction and tension for us with the U.S. Looking ahead now to 2019, we know the federal government has been talking up potential free trade agreements with ASEAN, the Pacific Alliance, or Mercosur. What do you see as maybe some trade opportunities in the new year, as well as maybe some trade challenges? So I'm certainly pessimistic about ASEAN and Mercosur. These are very difficult blocks with which to negotiate. Uh, you know, ask the Australians about negotiating with ASEAN, but be prepared to bring a box of Kleenex and buy them a couple of beers uh, while they tell you their, their tale of woe in negotiating with ASEAN. Mercosur, is, they've been negotiating with the EU for, I think, 20 years, 15 years, and they still haven't come to an agreement. 
So I'm pessimistic about those. Uh, Canada still has to work on the agreement with the European Union. There's still issues that are going to require negotiation. With the TPP, we're going to have new countries apply to join the agreement uh, as early as, I think, January or as soon as it comes into effect. So we're going to have to negotiate, uh, devote negotiating resources to that as well. And as I mentioned, the U.S., there'll be a series of trade irritants I see on the horizon with the U.S. Uh, we still have to fight with them over softwood lumber and everything else. So I think the um, tensions with the Americans will continue. I don't see the tariffs on steel and aluminum disappearing for us until we have a resolution to um, opening certain categories of dairy exports from the U.S. Under the new NAFTA agreement, Canada, or actually the prime minister, to be correct, agreed to get rid of two classifications of milk products that are particularly problematic to the Americans. Of course, the setting up of supply management, the running of supply management is a provincial, not a federal responsibility. So at some point, the provinces are going to have to agree to get rid of these classifications. And if you listen to the premier of Quebec, there's no indication whatsoever that he's ready to do so. So I see the Americans holding on to the steel and particularly the, particularly the, the aluminum tariffs as leverage to get Quebec to come to its senses um, with, uh, with opening up supply management and agreeing to what was negotiated at the, uh, at the NAFTA table. There will be a lot to watch for in the new year. Carla, I want to thank you for coming on the show, not just today, but throughout the year. And we look forward to having you back in 2019. Hey, my pleasure. I look forward to seeing you in the studio one of these days. That would be great. Anytime you're out here, you're welcome in. Okay, I'll take you up on that. <laughs> That's Carlo Dade, Director of the Center for Trade and Investment Policy at the Canada West Foundation. Joining me today is Jason Turcott, Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group. He's joined us throughout the year on the show to talk about real estate, and today we're going to look back at 2018 from a developer perspective. Jason, good to have you back on the show. Good to be back. Let's start with the markets. If you look back at the last six months or so, we've seen each month double-digit drops in sales over 10-year historical averages. Still waiting, of course, on December figures, but when you look back at the year, Jason, what happened in 2018? Yeah, I think there were a number of storylines in, uh, in 2018, and I, I would I would say the underlying theme throughout the year was a sense of uncertainty, which certainly, I think, uh, over the course of the year had its effect on, um, on some of the sales figures that you just referenced. And, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, Say the sales numbers themselves, in my opinion, it's a bit of a tale of two halves to the year, um, particularly on the pre-sale side of the equation, which obviously we're uh, a little more connected to um, as, a, as a company. Um, you know, the first half of the year started out quite quite well, uh, and we saw a lot of projects uh, um, sell out or come close to selling out in relatively short periods of time. And then the difference to the second half of the year was fairly remarkable in terms of the the amount of absorption in the pre-sale uh, side of the market. So a bit of a tale of, uh, of two halves for 2018. And if you look sort of at the forces behind this tale of two markets as you're putting it, what would you point to? What factors are at play here? 
Well, multiple levels of, of government intervention, and we we go back to uh, the budget announcement, and even before the actual announcement, I mean, there was a lot of speculation on what was to come of that budget. But uh, in February, you know, we had the announcement of an increased uh, an increase to the foreign buyers tax. We had increases to property transfer tax. Uh, we had the notional introduction of, of a speculation tax and of a school tax. And um, you know, not only did those um, come you know, have, have the immediate impact in terms of the financial implications. There were also, there was also a, a very delayed response to kind of the, the technical elements of some of these taxes and which, which just, I think just seeded uncertainty. What, what is it really going to mean to people? And, um, it took some, some folks or, you know, some, some segments of the market sort of longer to, I think, realize the impact of those. And as these announcements started to come and become real, um, you know, we saw the absorptions in certain parts of the markets um, slow. And of course, you know, the other thing that was happening in, in you know, concurrently to that are, were repeated interest rate increases and the uh, mortgage rate st- stress test along with it. So all of those things combined, I think, led to, uh, um, you know, a fairly significant uh, retraction in the number of sales that we saw happening across pretty much all segments uh, in the pre-sale market, particularly in the second half of the year. Would you say now at the end of the year, there's less uncertainty or are there still some questions about what some of these policies may mean? Well, I think, I think yeah, I think most of it is behind us. I mean, we did get clarification around speculation tax. Um, we certainly now, you know, from a developer's perspective, there were some other things happening that we were, you know, obviously very anxious uh, relative to more the the rental housing market, which obviously don't necessarily directly impact the condo market, but they are all connected in some ways. Um, and, you know, the one uh, the one question mark that remains outstanding is the imp- implementation of this so-called school tax, um, which has yet to be detailed. And I do still think that that is playing uh, a, a role significantly in the in the high ends of the market, the uh, three million plus market where this is um, supposed to apply. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's any chance that we see that rescinded? The city of Vancouver recently asked the government to consider taking that tax out of the equation, but of course it's one of the key pillars of the BC government's plan. What do you think the future maybe holds holds for this tax? I'm not sure. Uh, I would say that certainly this, you know, the provincial government has not tended to um, reverse decisions. They seem pretty committed to the announcements that they made. Uh, they, they have been, to a degree, receptive to feedback. And I, I would anticipate we might see some um, some tweaking, particularly because, uh, you know, we are playing catch up here a little bit with the BC assessment numbers. And what could stand to reason here is that it has had an immediate effect, along with all these other policy measures that we've just talked about, of, of particularly lowering the values at the high end of the market. And so, you know, the tax may be applied to houses that no longer are, are, are worth what they are intended to be taxed upon. And so, you know, we may see some adjustments in, the, you know, the values to which it applies or dates or what have you. But I, I don't know, you know, that we're going to see a, a complete reversal on this here, uh, just based on trends that, you know, have other policies that um, this government's brought in. Uh, but I would definitely I hope that they follow suit like they did with the speculation tax and, and at least remove it from the equation of potentially affecting the cost of producing new housing. Um, we were very concerned about the introduction of this tax applying to development parcels, for example, that are residentially zoned and, of course, are often in excess of $3 million. But that uh, that tax would be a direct input cost into the production of new housing. And we're certainly still holding out hope that they... Uh, 
um, you know, they exempt new new uh, development sites from that tax. Now, of course, all of these policies, be they at the municipal, provincial, or federal levels, all aimed at tackling affordability issues from where you sit. Do you think we've moved the needle on affordability yet? Well, I guess yes and no. I mean, we, we've certainly seen, um, you know, some decline, and in, in particularly in certain areas. I mean, the unfortunate part about, about our marketplace is where most of the decline has happened is at the ultra high end, which is really not affordable for anyone anyway. So whether it that whether a home is worth four million or three point six million, I'm not sure that it makes a whole lot of difference to ninety nine point nine percent of the population. Uh, and you know, I, I I did caution that you know one of the unintended consequences of some of these uh, tax measures that were implemented was that it would push the demand east. And I would say to some degree that has occurred. We have seen incredible growth, um, both in terms of um, pre-sale activity, number of, of uh, sales, particularly in the first half of the year, and uh, and most notably um, the price per square foot in some of the um, uh, product being developed uh, south of the Fraser, both in, in four-story apartment form, uh, high-rise concrete form, and, and in townhome form. I mean, the price uh, escalation out in that segment of the market has been quite remarkable. And I don't know that it's entirely related to that. I mean, it is certainly one of the most active growth regions, but it may it may have actually pushed some of the demand eastward. So uh, have we really tackled it for the masses of the people? Probably not not nearly enough. Um, and I'm not sure that we ever can. I mean, it's, it, it has always been an expensive place to, to live, and I'm not sure that that will ever change. We've spoken to you throughout the year about some of the barriers to bringing online greater supply of affordable housing or just generally more housing. Do you think we've moved the needle on that? Has it gotten easier? Have you seen some of the changes that you would have liked to have seen when it comes to, say, red tape or delays? I don't know that we've seen it realized yet, but I am starting to get the sense of an understanding from, um, you know, we, we work quite closely with the city of Vancouver uh, because we're quite active here, uh, and they, you know, they take the lead on a lot of these types of conversations. And I do get the sense that we are starting to starting to get an understanding, at least, um, of the necessity to, um, you know, uh, free up the supply chain through City Hall. And uh, it will take a long time and a lot of concerted effort to to streamline some of those processes. And we certainly haven't seen the the um, any of the timelines shortened yet, so we're still, you know, facing long, long approval timelines. But at a minimum, I would say we are starting to see a shift in thinking, and I think that's a positive. Mm -hmm. It looks like in the city's proposed budget, which will either be approved or changes will need to be made this week, but it looks like the development permit fees are proposed to increase 47%, fees for rezoning, subdivision, etc., all expected to rise. Is this kind of expected? Do you tend to see these fees rise year over year, or is this maybe going to be another barrier facing developers? Yeah, it, 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 well, I, I would say we've ex come to, uh, to expect quite drastic increases. In the, in the last five years, I would say, you know, particularly in the last few, um, some of the increases that we've seen have been staggering, um, whether it be application fees, uh, um, uh, new new building initiatives uh, that that have that have directly um, directly uh, led towards increased construction costs uh and and also on on the um um on the development cost levy side of things we saw the introduction of a new utilities DCL in the city of Vancouver which effectively doubled 
uh, development cost levies um, on a per door basis in certain areas of the city. So we have seen some incredible cost increases on on new housing simply on the on the approvals process. And like I said, it, we like the needle hasn't moved yet, but I am starting to get the sense that there is a there is at least a, a notional understanding of the need to start to rethink how we're approaching this a little bit. Yeah, and of course, to be fair, so many of these policies, whether they came online this year or last year, all these changes, they are fairly recent. I think no one's expecting the needle, the needle to move on supply overnight, right? It does, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and a lot of these things take a lot of time to come into play. So even recent announcements would have been, you know, uh, studies and, and reports and, you know, would have been ongoing for many, many months uh, back when the market was probably much more heated and it seemed like less of an issue. Um, so, you know, I think these things take time, but uh, we have to remain hopeful that that we can make progress on that. It is really important, particularly on rental housing. And, and we don't talk about rental housing as much on, on the show together, but um, it is going to play a major, major, major role in providing housing for our city um, uh, for the future, um, and particularly in, in the context of affordability. Mm-hmm. On that note, if you look at what the markets are expected to do next year, if you look sort of to the policy aspect of this, what are you expecting in 2019? Well, I am expecting that there will be at least a sense of, of um, uh, you know, sort of a minimizing of the of the sense of of, of um, uncertainty in the marketplace. I think that that was the underlying theme of 2018. There was just so much uncertainty about taxes and interest rates. And I, I think what, what we're seeing looking forward is that I think a lot of that dust has settled. Um, it's starting to look like the, the pressure on increasing interest rates is starting to subside. You know, the bond markets are actually pulling back a little bit, which is, tends to be an indicator for um, you know, potentially softening interest rates, not not increase interest rates. So there might be um, a, a little bit of optimism in terms of that that conversation. But of course, with softening interest rates, it's typically an indicator of the economy maybe not doing as well as we had hoped. But you know, there's still some bright lights on the economic side. It's not growing quite at the pace the government had predicted. Um, but I think uh, locally, we've still got tremendous growth coming to our region. There's there's a lot of interest. Um, you know. You know, we, we also are in the office development uh, uh, business, and we see tremendous uh, interest from, from many, many groups, particularly in the tech segment, looking to relocate and expand their operations here in Vancouver. So uh, I think, you know, we have we have reason to be cautiously optimistic looking forward, uh, both in terms of the macroeconomics of, of our region and, and of the country. Um uh, and and of housing as well. I think it's not going to return to uh, to sizzling red hot uh, sellers market as we've as we've seen over the past few years. But I think that the sense that the uncertainty has sort of been removed to a large degree will give people some confidence to to start pragmatically buying in great locations and where, where projects or 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 um, listings offer great value. There you go. A little bit of hope, not a bad way to end the year. <laughs> well. You know, us developers, we have to be optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show, not just today, but throughout the year. And we look forward to having you back in 2019. Yes, thanks so much for having me over the year and have yourself a happy holiday. Thanks, you too. That's Jason Turcott, sure. Vice President of Development at Cressy Development.
That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. Listen all week for various takes on 2018. We'll be having more conversations to come on politics, cannabis, energy, and business. You can get notified by subscribing to us on iTunes and or Stitcher. And we want to get the word out. And if you loved an episode or are a general fan of the show, please consider sharing it within your networks. Listen to episodes, of course, and read more business news at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. 